0: Greetings, and welcome to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. On this November 2020 episode of The Fuse, I will speak with Elizabeth Hetherington, a young Canadian soprano making a name for herself in the early and new music worlds of the Netherlands and one of the featured performers in A Purcell Remembrance, the latest online concert from Confluence. The renowned English conductor and author Andrew Parrott is a household name among fans of the early music revival. He and I had a lively conversation about Henry Purcell, which we will feature on this episode. And I will also visit with Kate Nishimura, a young composer and songwriter who is rapidly gaining attention on the national stage. Those conversations, our monthly calendar, and a whole lot more on this month's edition of The Fuse. Hello, I hope this finds all of you doing well as we approach the end of this strange and remarkable year. It's been a busy time for Confluence. We are happy that we made an early start on recording our November and December online programs before this latest lockdown. Our show, A Purcell Remembrance, is currently available on the Confluence YouTube channel until December 5th, and features a rich program of the music of Henry Purcell to commemorate the 325th anniversary of his death. Performers include members of Victoria Baroque, counter-tenor Daniel Taylor, and a number of his students from the Historical Performance Department at the University of Toronto, tenor Lawrence Williford and lutenist Lucas Harris, confluence associates Patricia O'Callaghan and Subha Shankaran, and an ensemble based in Amsterdam called Duo Serenissima. Duo Serenissima is made up of Dutch lutenist David Makor, and Canadian soprano Elizabeth Hetherington. Elizabeth and I go way back, and it was such a pleasure to be back in touch with her to discuss the details around this program. At some point, I issued an invitation for a longer chat for this podcast, and to my great delight, she agreed. Elizabeth Hetherington, welcome to The Fuse.
1: Hello, Larry. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so great to see you,
0: and so great that you were a part of our recent a concert which people can still catch on our YouTube channel, a personal wow. remembrance. Thank thank you so much for your participation in that.
1: It was a true pleasure. I was so happy to be able to be a part of it. It's my wow. second venture back into Canada since I moved. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. And yes. I, I think when I first met you, you were a member of the Toronto Children's Chorus. And yes. so in my sort of impression of you, you've just been singing forever and and you have such a natural joy you know when uh when i see you singing when i hear you singing it just comes it it just seems to come so naturally to you and i think that that's what makes you such a uh an attractive singer as well too is that you seem to be enjoying it so much where did that love of singing come from where where did you can you remember when you first started enjoying singing
1: it's one of those things that i feel like i've been singing my whole life. My parents are both singers. My parents met in the conserv- the Royal Conservatory in Toronto. Um, and there's just always music around me. There was always singing around me. Uh, and so I think that really from, from as long as I can remember, I have loved making sounds and making and joining in with other people and singing with other people. And the funny thing is, when did you enjoy singing? When did you start enjoying making music? That's I feel like that's an interesting question because I feel like only since I moved or since I, you know, moved to the university level and began realizing how little I actually knew about music and how much there was to learn and how much amazing music there was to sing. I feel like that's when I rediscovered the joy of singing and rediscovered how much I love doing it and that it is truly my favorite thing in the world to do that's really interesting
0: sometimes when we when we discover that we don't know you know when we have that moment where we realize you know I don't know anything um that can be a crippling feeling and it can kind of make you kind of go in on yourself but with you it seems to have just opened you up even more
1: well I think that there is definitely the first realization of not knowing anything definitely you know your self-esteem plummets you (laughs) you think you have nothing to say but then when you realize that everybody has been everybody who i respect and all the musicians that i hold on a pedestal they all have had that moment and then from that they found their own way of speaking their own what they personally have to say and their own way of doing it and i think that that is what makes in- each individual musician each individual artist so special is having then that it all comes from that first moment of i know nothing how can i build from this
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that's very well put was there somebody in your early life uh as a student uh maybe as a high school student or a a university student who really took you to that next level who sort of shepherded you through was there a seminal figure uh or teacher in your story
1: there have been so many and i really feel like i am one of those it takes a village to raise a child (laughs) instances i have had So many incredible, influential teachers, conductors, composers, lecturers, um, just musicians that I've been able to work with. It's so hard to think of just one. I feel like I've been handed from amazing person to amazing person. I mean, you know, when you first start, you mentioned I sang in the Toronto Children's Chorus, Jean Ashworth Bartle. She gave me my, my tool set, my musicianship skills, and she opened up my curiosity for music making and finding you know, purity and, and perfection, even though perfection doesn't exist, but the drive for it definitely does. And then in university, I first started with Joanne Bentley, who I came to a first lesson and thought that I knew everything about singing and she informed me that I didn't, but that I could. <laughs> and having her teaching and having her guidance through the first two years of my university, then being passed off to Jean McPhail, who told me that, you know, saying, oh, kiddo, the world is your oyster. You just have to figure out what you want to do. And and having all of these amazing people basically uh, show me different tools, give me different different curiosities, different uh, ideas. Uh, When I moved here, I think that I've had, and I, I moved to Amsterdam and the biggest musical influence, career influence, personal influence um, has been a, a, a man by the name of Jed Wentz. He's a lecturer, writer, musicologist, brilliant traverso player, expert yeah, in yeah. Uh, historical acting, everything. He's and a very he's become a very dear personal friend of mine. I'm so lucky to be able to say that. and uh, he's so he has been since I've moved to here the one that i've been lucky enough to encounter
0: and what brought you to amsterdam
1: that's a great question i came to amsterdam uh in 2016 i think for my master's and i studied at the uh, conservatory of amsterdam and it's it's funny a lot of people ask me well why did you choose amsterdam why did you settle why did you decide to settle set roots there and you know the, the honest to goodness answer of course there's the uh history of the netherlands and early music i went i decided in toronto that i wanted to study early music and that i wanted to pursue a ma- master's degree in that and the netherlands has you know such a rich history in the education of early music and the early music revival happening you know in the in the 20th century and all of Tafelmusik, music it seemed to me went to the hague and so i also decided i was going to try to go to the hague that was my school and To be perfectly honest i got out of the train the amsterdam station and i fell in love with the city i decided i couldn't live anywhere else i immediately within minutes of walking out of the train station with my backpack and my audition clothing scrunched up in a little ball i decided that that's where i had to end up and here i am five years later
0: (laughs) and what is it what is it specifically about the city that that sort of spoke to you do you feel
1: That's a great question. You know, I think it's this interesting combination in Amsterdam of it being a big city, but feeling like a small town. You know, everything, you have everything here. You have so much diversity, so much art, so many concerts, so much happening. And yet you can bike from one side to the other in 45 minutes. And, And I think that was the thing that immediately made me feel at home. But the thing that has kept me living in this city, and and I guess more living in the Netherlands, is the, the general approach to music making here, and the general, the way that people view art, view artists, view concerts, it's so warm, it's so accepting, it's so inquisitive, and I have just, I have completely fallen in love. And you came to
0: study early music, but I notice in your Sort of CV that you're, um, you sing a lot of new music as well, I contemporary do. music. And I, 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 I know that, especially with singers, there's quite often quite a, a connection between early music and contemporary music. And what do you think that connection is, or why do you think that is?
1: That's a great question, because there definitely is that undeniable correlation. I think a lot of it has to do with, at, at the very, very base level, an approach that singers who are most interested in early music, they'll be interested in discovering and in, in researching and delving into it in detail-oriented music making. I think that that lends itself so well to music written, you know, what well, you would say hopefully for all music, but especially for writ- music written, you know, pre 1750. And I think that that intense drive and, and, and determination in to find clarity and to find detail and to find new shapes and new colors and new ways of doing things i think that that lends itself so well to contemporary music where you are also you are given you know a score that is essentially a blueprint it's not always immediately accessible it's not always immediately understandable and when you have the natural inclination to try to find detail to try to find musicality in something that isn't necessarily inherently musical I think that you end up enjoying the process so much more and you know there are also different layers of different voices finding um, ease in different repertoires so for instance and this is a huge generalization but voices that have more flexibility perhaps or the ability to utilize very specific colorings in their voice that lends itself so well to, you know, the early Baroque. It's just amazing to be able to create a really an interesting sound for a specific moment to underline a specific word, a specific effetto, And that is so useful in contemporary music. You find that composers nowadays in the 20th, you know, late 20th, 21st century, they'll often ask for specific colors, finding interesting sounds and ways of using the voice as the unbelievably flexible instrument that it is with the infinite possibilities
0: it's it does make you remember how radical the early uh composers were you know oh. late late 16th early 17th century oh composers. even we, before
1: that yes well we, you know we, it's just once oh, and how radical the performers of that music were yes You know, I've done a lot of research into, especially the first women who were hired and paid performers, paid singers. And you look at like Vittoria Arquilei, who in 1589, she was one of the first women to perform publicly and be paid for it and not be called a prostitute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And she descends from a cloud in this wedding, accompanying herself on a bass lute, singing more notes than anybody could write down. And it's just she was radical she was radical the composers that were then inspired to write for her were radical and it's i think that so often we forget how visceral how exciting how groundbreaking the music in in its time was and how how exciting how visceral how groundbreaking we can still make it it is i i really genuinely feel that this music isn't you know an exercise in in study you have to have study you have to have understanding but that's just that's just the base is an exercise in finding the extremes finding the personality finding the passion that it had to have in order to survive it's incredible i find it so exciting yes,
0: obviously <laughs> yeah. and um and i think that 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 really translated in in the two songs that you that you sent for our personal oh, uh, recital. It was it was really great to hear those songs um, with such a sense of novelty and such a sense of sort of um, I don't know. You you captured the ephemeral quality of them uh, really well, and you made them your own certainly. Um, Thank you. And I think took risks with with uh, <laughs> because of course the the black dots that we have on the page are only. The beginning right and you and it's it's all about putting your um making it sound in a way as if it's being made up on the spot or something completely and that's the
1: really amazing thing that like what i loved about your programming of the of the concert was that there was a a jazz singer who was who and and i thought that that was so i mean i obviously she's an incredible performer incredible like these arrangements were amazing but what i really liked about it was that that's in general that is my approach to music from that time to music you know throughout the 17th century I'd easily say I mean once you get a little bit later than that it it becomes you know a, a different type of story but that is the closest way that I can speak to that music is in this flexible in this you know as like you say as if it's being made up on the spot as if it's being made up from your perspective with your experiences and the really the really interesting thing I think is that, you know, we can know as much as we know, but we will never know everything. And that's both overwhelming as we discussed earlier and so exciting, you know, cuz we can learn so much and yet we will never be in the viewpoint of those people specifically. You know, we will never be able to breathe the same life into the music that they did and that can make you very sad, <laughs> but it gives you the opportunity to bre- to be able to breathe your own life into it, and to be able to breathe your own spirit into those black notes on a page. Sure.
0: What are your plans? You know, here we are in uh, toward the end of November in this yep. extraordinary year, mm-hmm. and how are you coping? And and how are you um, looking forward in terms of your of your life as a, a musician there in <laughs> Amsterdam?
1: You know, I've been really lucky. I've been really lucky um, at the situation here. The Netherlands, a lot of performances and a lot of the companies that I've been working for and the concert venues that I've been booked by have been able to make enough concessions that performances can continue in some way or another. So I have been able to have my performing outlet. I'm very, very lucky. Um, How am I feeling towards the future. I'm feeling really hopeful, you know. I've noticed that for right now I'm finishing up a a tour with a dance company. I developed a project uh, with a modern dance company, Laino Urbana, and it's based on my research into uh, Elizabethan Lute Song, but moreover the inherent relationship between movement and dance and singing and declamation and the body and how the body is the body. Uh, No matter whether you're performing choreography or singing, you're utilizing your body, you're utilizing the same instrument. Um, So I have been able to continue on with that tour, which has been so gratifying and so wonderful, but I'm hopeful for the future. The people who I've been able to talk to post concerts, every concert that I've done has been filled with the most supportive, the most enthusiastic, the most mm. heartfelt crowds that I think I have ever, mm. I have ever encountered. And I think that this experience, I mean, I I'm, I, I hope, but I, I found that this this horrible experience has given, well, because given audiences, a taste of what it is like to live without art, and without live performance. And from the responses from the immediate tickets being you know, completely sold out immediately and the responses and the lineups. I have realized now that people don't want to go without art, that they are hungry for performance, that they're hungry to be a part of something like this. To be a part of live performance is so special, is so... Inherently part of the human experience, and I think that people now, when all of this, as this eases, as this gradually, as this gradually gets better, whatever that will turn into, I think that this hunger for art and this appreciation for the performing arts will only grow again, and that makes me really excited for the future.
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean, I certainly share that, and uh, but it has been a reminder to us how how valuable. Uh, yeah. art is and what a special thing it is to gather and okay. and experience it uh in person thank you for this it's
1: really oh, it's great been a pleasure. To,
0: to talk with you and uh i look forward to the next time Definitely. and thank you again for being part of a personal remembrance and all the best to you in uh, uh in the coming weeks and months and and time thank you
1: Thank you very much
0: elizabeth hetherington is a brilliantly talented young Canadian soprano currently based in Amsterdam. For more information, you can visit her website at www.elizabethhetherington.com. That's Elizabeth with an S. You are listening to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. As I mentioned earlier, we have a program currently streaming on our YouTube channel called A personal Remembrance featuring a wide array of performances of the great music of the English Orpheus, as he was called, Henry Purcell. I've made no secret of the fact that I adore the music of Purcell, and preparing this program was a deep confirmation of that love. Of course, the music is of the highest quality and really represents a pinnacle in the history of early English music. But at the same time, it is so accessible and timeless, and we had fun, especially in the performances by Subha Shankaran, and her partner Dylan Bell, reimagining this great music in a more modern context, as well as presenting it in its more traditional historically informed manner. One of the most renowned experts on historically informed early music is the English conductor and scholar Andrew Parrott, the founder and conductor of the English early music organization the Taverner Consort, Andrew is the author of a number of articles and books on performance practice, and normally enjoys a busy international career as a guest conductor. Indeed, I had the pleasure of singing for Andrew a number of times when he came to Toronto to conduct at Tafel Music and Opera Atelier many years ago. I reached him recently for a pre-show chat for our Purcell program, and began by asking if he could remember the first time he came in contact with the music of Henry Purcell.
2: To be quite frank, I, I don't, uh, not not the absolute first one, but I, I should point out I was not brought up like a lot of my colleagues as, a, as an Anglican choir boy or, or indeed Anglican at all, I wasn't. Um, so first encounter I do remember, and I remember it quite vividly, though not with a specific piece, was in 1959, which was the whatever anniversary it was of, of the birth of, of, of Purcell um, and the death of Handel, uh, centenary of, of Handel. So there was, in I, I, I was, brought up in the industrial Midlands. So not, not quite a wasteland culturally, but, but not, not throbbing uh, as parts of it now are with, with, with life, uh, musical life. But there was a, a handle, a personal handle festival in Wolverhampton, which is, which was nearby. And I, either my parents took me to it or I dragged them to it, which was more likely at the age of 12, I suppose it was. And I, I remember, I do remember, being introduced to the counterturner as it was it well still is really and that's that's one thing mm-hmm. but to pass on to handle. Also in this church the parish church in which some of the events took place had a Renatus Harris organ built in sixteen eighty four there, which had been i don't know whether your or, or your your listeners will know about the battle of the organs but in 1682 three, four, the the lawyers in london wanted a new um, instrument for uh, the very best of course for the temple church uh, and uh, they commissioned first of all Bernhard schmidt Father Father Smith, um, who was the established organ builder, the older one, and uh, without his knowledge, they then also set up a competition between him and Renatus Harris. Um, And there were two polarities. Purcell eventually, uh, well, played at the demonstration um, for for the Smith organ, but the Harris organ, um, when it failed to win this competition, it didn't often happen, this (laughs) (laughs) thing, It was It was sent off to uh, Christ Church Cathedral in Dublin, where it remained for I think sort of 70,, 80, 80 years, something like that, and then came back and I think it must have got stranded in Wolverhampton, but there, going back to this Handel Festival, Handel Pursa Festival, was an historical instrument. And in England, as as I'm sure you you realise, there are very few historical organs. They were all smashed up uh, Mm. in the Civil War and and the pipes, metal pipes, you know, melted down for for good old, you know, cannon. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that was the first introduction. Um, And I don't remember particular pieces, but I do remember... This, this is something interesting there, there's historical stuff and there's musical stuff there and Purcell is not just a, you know, he, he stands up to comparison with Handel, he's different but he's he's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the second one was when I went to university uh, where the, the senior professor Jack Westrup was, was the author of the book on Purcell. Daniel Purcell, um, Henry's younger brother, uh, had been organist at Magdalen College uh, in Oxford where he was and this is the most important thing, in the Bodleian Library when I was uh, sort of starting research after three undergraduate years, um, I I was working on English performance practice of, uh, um, in uh, 16th and 17th centuries, and there was the autograph score, which I was allowed to touch alone, um, of of Hail Bright Cecilia, 1692 Ode, hmm. which is just fantastic i mean yes. just not just a score but it's a fabulous piece it's got his annotations of this singer saying that part that singer that and you can deduce all sorts of things from it as well as just sort of seeing this wonderful clear bold straightforward hand and the mess of sort of, you know changing that sure. and sort of the second performance will do this slightly different one. Yeah, anyway, so that, those are my memorable introductions to Purcell. And But I was, ah, sorry, I should add, sorry, if I may, um, that also I, I got, I, I I was running the um, university choir, the School of Cantorum of Oxford, and Tippett, Michael Tippett, who mm-hmm. was one of the first people to perform Purcell as uh, seriously in England in the war years, um, the Second World War, um, he uh, ran the Bath Festival and um, asked the choir to be the choir to, to perform in with his him conducting Hail Bright Cecilia. So I got to know that piece then, and then then I started sort of thinking about it all in a more refined way. But uh, I was a late beginner, but right. I'm still getting strong. I hope with Persel.
0: <laughs> now, when you say that uh, Tippett was one of the first conductors to perform Purcell's music. Yeah. so does that indicate that there was was he forgotten for for a number of of well, years or I, even centuries do you think i'm
2: pro- I, well I didn't, no he wasn't because uh, in church music for example the, right. um that that the, the, the tradition was unbroken the anglican tradition mm-hmm. and uh, there's a wonderful article by George Bernard Shaw, where he, when he was a music critic, he goes to visit um, a performance of Dieter Aeneas in, in East End of London. He takes a, a gun with him just for protection, and all the rest of it. it's a <laughs> wonderful story. Um, so he, uh, he was known about, um, I, I mean, I think large chunks of of his music were were not performed, and the odd song. The respect was turned to Purcell, and a few pieces were known, but we didn't have the broad view of his multifarious um, skills and, and and output that that we now have. I think.
0: And do you think the reemergence of of interest in that came sort of hand in hand with the with the early music movement? Of the... Well,
2: this comes back to the council thing, because and I have a, a sort of <laughs> a very different view from. Uh, the Receive View uh, now. But Tippett, when he was performing Purcell, not, not just this uh, Hail Bright Cecilia, 1692, ode, um, but he, he realised we needed a countertenor. And where do you go to find countertenors? Well, there was said to be one who could actually sing, sort of, you know, m- uh, not hide away in the choir, mm-hmm. but um, as a soloist uh, named Alfred Della in, in uh, Canterbury Cathedral. So and the rest is history because Tippett then proclaimed this is the countertenor and I, I beg to differ, but, but Alfred Della, wonderful singer in his way and very influential, um, then was part of the early music re- revival. Um, and that was a very important step forward. Yes.
0: What do you think It this is a very general question, but what do you think it is about what are the distinctive qualities of Purcell's music that sort of set it apart as, um, as being unique and 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 wonderful
2: well first of all there are distinctive qualities that, that set it apart mm-hmm. um and it, it it's i'm I'm not very good at analyzing things but uh what is clear to me um certainly when you heard bits of his diverse output that he was strongly in an english tradition uh, that, that that goes back to the, the madrigalists, uh, you know Dowland and, and, and um, all, all the great Elizabethans, Bird and so on. And um, well, his, his, his early pieces are very much in that. Actually, William Laws. I don't know whether you've come across William Laws. The, the two brothers, the mm-hmm. one was wrote all the songs and were, was was very influential in that respect. But William Laws. Just a bit bit strange and, and experimental and quirky in a in a wonderful, dare I say, English way, I think. Um so so that harmonic sense is is inherited and and Personal, as I'm sure you know wrote some wonderful um they, they were exercises really but he dates them when he's sort of 16 or something I forgot I forgotten how old he was and they are wonderful because they are masterpieces at the age of 16 so in that sense um, you know he, he, he's a, some, almost a Mozartian because mm-hmm. I mean, he, was, he was not just turning out pieces he was turning out masterpieces uh, early on where was I going with this remind me um
0: well just w- the the sort of stylistic um personality of, of, of well, okay of, sorry uh, yes
2: yeah, that was the starting point for, for in, inherited that and of course he he, um, he played the organ and was um, a member of the chapel royal so he knew all the church music traditions that was carried carried over after the after the civil war into the restoration um but uh, french music was was the big thing and lily's music was the model. So he absorbed that quite naturally. He didn't study it formally or go to a music conservatory. He just breathed it uh, in and there were French musicians coming to England and there were French the French copies of music coming to England and being performed naturally at court not least. Um, the, the court was very French right and then there was a wave of Italians coming in and there also there were Germans coming in as well so in London which is a wonderful melting pot and you know the biggest uh, city of Europe in, in or rather the most cosmopolitan city in Europe was a wonderful place for him to grow up and he mm. just you know, whatever was going on, he just took it in, as Mozart did, going going to Italy and going to Germany and, I mean, to 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 France, everywhere in England, but he didn't travel. Purcell, as far well as we know, just stayed put in London, and that was enough to, to give him all the inspirations. So his own style is, it, it would be, I mean, in some cases, it it's a synthesis of that. Sometimes it's an imitation of that. Uh, sometimes it's just personal and you can't put your finger on it, and that's probably the, the greatest person and uh, it's right. such a shame that he didn't live longer because it's not that these are all beginner's works but we want, we want more of them, we want more of the mature, mature ones if you like yeah. and more substantial ones I think because there are lots of little fragments and you think that is just brilliant and 12 yeah. bars or that that harmonic turn and it's not that he couldn't sustain larger canvases, uh, right on larger canvases but he didn't really have that opportunity very often and Again, I come back to the sixteen ninety two O. Oh, that's what forty five minutes or, or something of a, a good span, and it's just brilliant. It really mm-hmm. is.
0: Yes, I, I one of the things that strikes me about Purcell too is that he seemed to travel with such ease it, um, through the all of the societies in in London. I mean, he was a great favorite of the of the monarchs. Um, he was obviously a superstar in the church music world. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then he became the darling of the, of the theater world uh, Mm -hmm. when everybody, all the playwrights wanted to, Mm -hmm. to have him include songs and, and music Mm -hmm. in their plays. Mm -hmm. And then he also seemed to be very comfortable, you know, taking people out to the pub. He wrote these Alehouse songs and, Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of rather, uh, fruity uh, catches and everything. So I just think, I mean, if you maybe you could talk a little bit about just the ease in which he seemed to move at such a young age through through the English uh, and uh, the society of London.
2: Well, in in a way, it, it's um, his career is. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, his life was. It's a microcosm of, of what was going on because. London was not the big place that it is, it, it was big, but mm. the, and the court was at the centre of it, but um, somebody who sang in Westminster um, um, Abbey Choir could also be a member of the Chapel Royal, so just go over the road when the when the Chapel Royal is in, in London or, or at Westminster, and you're singing that, so you're in two choirs at once, and uh, yes, in the evenings you may be employed by the the Playhouse for something else, or And of course, after you've been performing with these people, and you go to a pub, and um, you know, because that's healthy water to drink, isn't it? That's the reason (laughs) people drink. Um, uh, And and you have fun there. And of course, that, that, that even that ignores one whole important strand of personal music, which is the domestic music, because we don't. I mean, do people write private devotional music nowadays? I would say it's not a big um, market mm-hmm. for that. You say um, they write church music. Often these are these are in categories. If it's, it's it's very interesting to ask what he would have been like today. I mean, he would have probably been. He would have been seduced by television and Hollywood and everything. How he would have balanced it, how it would have worked out. Who who can guess? But he would have been capable of doing all these things whether it was the best sort of career choice in terms of our retrospective need for him to have written you know, great pieces in that genre or that genre. But he, he had to earn a living. And um, I don't think he prostituted himself at any stage. He, there was always opportunity. And of course he was born into a musical family. Mm-hmm. So the contacts were already there. Not, not, not the, And he was surrounded by really comparably versatile musicians. So he wasn't exceptional in that sense the, mm-hmm. the quality is what makes him exceptional, not not the diversity uh, of what he does, I, I would say.
0: That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. What do you think the lasting impact is of Purcell on English music? I mean, I, I know he was a great influence on, on Benjamin Britten, for instance, yes. but well, how I mean, do you see Purcell's influence going forward?
2: Well, from here, well, I was just before that mm-hmm. uh, tricky question. Well, well, my subconscious thinks of an, <laughs> an answer. Um, he was an influence on Handel because when Handel arrived, just um, I suppose a decade or so after Purcell's death, his untimely death, you know, he, he, Handel wanted to know what Purcell was and what English music was about, and, and he clearly did admire it. And he does his usual thing of not quite copying it, but but um, you know, feeding off it very very healthily. <laughs> The bad thing, if I put it this way, is in my my view that Handel sort of wrecked the excellent English tradition of setting English words, because Handel's English was never, I mean, yes, he was fluent in the sense of that, that he communicated very clearly mm-hmm. and quickly, but it was not very stylish, shall we say. And some of his word-setting is really, really bad. And it would never have happened in Purcell's day. Because with, with Purcell's word-setting, I mean, that goes back to, you know, to Dowland, if you like, and and, and the madrigals, where whether you like the words or not, or whether they mean things to, uh, to us nowadays not, but they are set exquisitely well. And of course, there are the Shakespeare songs as well, which, which bring the literary tradition, uh, keep that alive in music. But Handel was such a strong role model for, for all the reasons we know. I mean he's an excellent composer. but, but his word setting does not uh, match other th- aspects of his composition. and English composers, I think, got lazier about word setting and turned mm. it out, um, which is a bad influence. Um, I mean it, it, is, it is difficult to know because Handel had a longer career and and a bigger career, a more international career. So he, he, he doesn't make the same impact to us nowadays. But running, I think even, even when he's just a name for most people in, in English music in the 19th century, he's still alive in the church music and, and fantastic funeral music, um, apart from yes, to, to the um, two the, sets. Well, an early one of three, three um, sentence funeral sentences, mm-hmm. a man that is born of a woman and so on. And then the, the shorter, simpler, more homophonic settings for the funeral of Queen Mary and performed at his own uh, funeral as well. So, lasting impact, well, he, he's always been there because we uh, felt slightly apologetic that, well, the, the accusation from Germany and elsewhere has been that, that we are das Land ohne Musik, the land without music. Well, there is some truth of that uh, to that in the, the quality of some, of, of most 19th century music. But if we go before that, that is absolutely not true. it no. was right up there with, with any other thing, going right back to Dunstable and, mm-hmm. and before. So he's always been there as a sort of hope, in a way, personal, we've got our man, well, now we've got Elgar eventually in the Edwardian period. and But, but I, I, I think the impact is still not known because we, we're only just beginning to, to know the fuller, Range of Purcell's music, and I think there is still a lot that I've never encountered myself. So maybe I should turn to listening to or looking at some more music.
0: Um, I'm going to end the interview, just uh, sort of bringing it full circle. I asked you about your first encounters with yeah. Purcell. How does Purcell endure in your life uh, as a musician? Uh, what what role does Purcell play in your in your work now?
2: Well, um, um I if I had the power which you may assume I do have to dictate what I perform then I would be performing a lot of, of, of personal um, and partly not because we need more recordings or, or those but I still got some thoughts which I think about the style in which it, he's performed which do affect your perception of what the piece is mm. there are, there are um, certain misconceptions or shortcuts and, and in a way that goes back to Handel though I can't blame him because we think we tend to think we now know how to perform Baroque music, and that's sort of, sort of like Handel. But Purcell is, yes, yeah, okay, it's only a generation or a bit later, but mm-hmm. it's a very crucial distinction. And if you hand, handelianize, is that a verb? Um, <laughs> Purcell, it, some of it can work, and some of it, to my mind, does not work uh, as well as it should do. So um, I, I, if I were in a position, and of course, with lockdown, I'm doing absolutely no conducting at all. Um, That would be one important thing to do, I think, to try and uh, to influence the way that other people hear and view personally. I think uh, it's a pity that in a way that there aren't more substantial works because I think the theatre works are so fragmentary. In a way, it's incidental music with great bits in it. Mm -hmm. got Dido, which is a a gem for a small thing. And we've got uh, the the odes, which sometimes have obsequious words, which, uh, you know, Make it a little bit difficult to find
0: them a bit, yeah.
2: That's right. So uh, I wish there were more Purcell, not it's not his fault, <laughs> it's not her fault, it's uh, the fault of circumstances. And um, if he'd lived longer, maybe that would have happened. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Larry.
0: That was the English conductor, Andrew Parrott. Out of interest, I have put together a Spotify playlist of the most wonderful recordings of Purcell's music by Andrew Parrott and his Taverner consort and I will share it widely. It's well worth a listen. Speaking of which, it's time for some music. This is Hear the Deities Approve, from our program A Personal Remembrance, sung by countertenor Ryan MacDonald, accompanied by gambist Felix Deke, harpsichordist Christopher Began, and lutenist Lucas Harris. I make a cameo performance near the end, playing the other string parts layered on top of one another, which is a technique we're all having to learn together in these distanced times. Mm That was Hear the Deities Approve from the 1683 St. Cecilia's Day Ode, Welcome to All the Pleasures by Henry Purcell. You can hear that and many other wonderful performances of Purcell's music on the Confluence YouTube channel until December 5th. Hot on the heels of a Purcell remembrance, we will be presenting the premiere of the annual Walter Unger Salon on Monday, December 7th at 7 p.m., on our YouTube channel curated by doctors Linda and Michael Hutchin the salon is entitled aging and creativity and takes a look at the late creative work of composer Olivier Messia and poet and songwriter Leonard Cohen with featured musical performances by soprano Patricia O'Callaghan and pianist Robert Kortgaard we hope you'll join us I also urge you to look into new programming from the Alora Singers from Tapestry Opera in partnership with New Music Concerts, and the Toronto Consort, who have launched Early Music Television, a wide-ranging network of lectures, performances, and behind-the-scenes interviews about early music. There is so much outstanding and important work being produced by a number of wonderful companies in place of in-person concerts. The goal is to maintain community and connection, and I know that we're all looking forward to a time when we can be together again to enjoy live music. Some of you may know that I have the pleasure of working with teenaged musicians at an arts school just north of the city, and I've been working there long enough now that several students from the school have continued on to do interesting work as professional musicians. One of these is the young award-winning composer and songwriter Kate Nishimura, and she joins me now from her home in Waterloo. Kate Nishimura, welcome to The Fuse.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: And um, so I have known you for a number of years and got to watch you in your formative years developing into a really, really interesting, wide-ranging musician. I mean, when I knew you, you played the bass clarinet. And I think you were just getting into singing as well. But, you know, what is it in your musical background that has led you to, to composing?
3: Well... I think more than anything curiosity. I have been, you know, I started taking piano lessons when I was around nine years old. Um, My own request, I was just very interested in doing that. I started taking band at school in grade six, playing the bass clarinet. And I think I was just so curious about how all of the sounds came together in the music that I was listening to, to evoke such strong feelings and to make me and other people feel like we were being transported somewhere else. Just music has such an incredible power to to do things like that to people. And I think I was so curious about how that worked. So by the time I got to um, high school where I met you and um, was playing in so many different ensembles there, You know, I was fortunate to be surrounded by other creative minded people and teachers who who encouraged my curiosity. So when I asked, you know, can I take a look at the score for this piece that we're playing? I want to know why it works this way and how my part fits into the whole, you know, um, I was met with. Yes. And why don't you check this out, too? So I think really it all just started with being curious and asking questions of the right people. I had the opportunity to write my first concert band piece when I was in high school and actually have it played by not any real people, you know, but my friends, my peers, people that I had been making music with. Um, So that was a a formative experience for sure. And once I had the opportunity to hear my ideas come to life in that way, I was pretty much hooked and i wanted to just do that as much as i could in whatever way possible i didn't necessarily think it would be a career i had it pretty ingrained in my mind that being a composer was not a feasible you know financial route (laughs) um and so i never i never thought that um i would be making a living as a composer but it was always something that i enjoyed doing as a a way of expressing my ideas and Uh, connecting the dots between my own musical experiences and personal experiences. So it was really quite an organic progression from curiosity to career, I would say.
0: What did that feel like the first time you, you heard your music played?
3: I knew that the ideas that were floating around in my head had the potential to maybe sound like something. I had a concept in my mind of what that could be like but hearing it played back to me in real time, um, hearing the breath of real people flowing through instruments and then creating an energy that we could all experience, uh, I really think that was magic. And knowing that maybe I had uh, the potential to influence um, the way that other people would feel and to contribute to creating a little bit of magic for other people. Like, I think that's really, um, what kept it going for me. It, it felt amazing. Obviously, every time I hear my, my music played, it's not exactly how I think it's going to go sometimes for better or for worse. Um, but it's always a unique experience. And I think I chase that, that feeling in every way that I can. So when
0: you went through university, did you, did you pursue composing
3: Not in a formal way. I went to the University of Toronto and I studied music education. I continued playing bass clarinet in the wind ensemble and I took conducting courses. And as a music ed major, I I had to take all of those introductory courses to learn how to play every instrument. I didn't necessarily think about it at the time, but I'm really thankful that I did all of that because I now have such a a solid understanding of how all of the instruments work, even the ones that I don't play. So as a composer now, um, I'm able to draw on that knowledge and experience. Having fumbled my way through playing the trombone and not being able to reach seventh position, you know, I that awareness is is helpful for me as a composer now. So, no, to answer your question, I did not study composition, but all of all of the classes I took, all of the experiences that I had, performance experiences, education experiences. Um, all contributed in some way to me being able to pursue composition as a career once I graduated.
0: And was there a, a, or can you point to sort of one profound experience that you had, or maybe it was a major experience of, of, um, of hearing your music or of being involved in a project that kind of brought your, your career aspirations to another level?
3: Yeah, there have been a lot of, of transformative, you know, really meaningful experiences that I've had. It's, it's only year three for me as a full-time composer. I did a bit of teaching and other things between graduation and today. Um, but one that comes to mind is actually a, a recent experience. And it was my last in-person gig before the pandemic hit. Mm. Uh, and I had the opportunity to go to Lethbridge, Alberta with Dr. Jillian McKay, who was my former professor, conductor of the wind ensemble at U of T. And she conducted the world premiere of one of my pieces a few years ago called Lake Superior Suite. And we were invited together to be the guest conductors, guest artists at the, Lethbridge Community Band Society. I think that's what they're called. They were doing an International Women's Day concert Mm -hmm. where their entire program was music written by women and they had women in as guest conductors. Um, And so to be sharing the stage with someone who I consider to be a mentor and a, a big influence in my musical journey uh, to be hired to do something together, I think was, um, you know, a pretty big deal for me. And so she conducted my music, and I also conducted my music on the same concert. So that was a pretty big deal. And we did a joint uh, workshop at the high school that sh- she attended. So it was kind of this nice full circle experience, I think, right. for everybody involved. So although that was a more recent experience, I, you know, I, I think that's a a definitive one. And I miss making music with real people and you know in in real life Um, don't we all yes yes so I look forward to doing more of that (laughs) yes
0: so I think we're all going to have this ecstatic experience when this is all over of um of coming back into into reality
3: absolutely (laughs) a a, a reunion of sorts (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. um well that's neat Uh, so you say you're kind of in year three of the of the full-time composer uh persona Mm-hmm. And do you feel that you' found your voice, or what how would you describe your voice as a as a composer?
3: That's an interesting question. i I don't know if I've necessarily found the voice. Um, you know, I, I think that um it's all about growth. You know, the more life experience and perspective that we have, the more we're able to communicate in an authentic and genuine way. So, I see it as this is still just the beginning for me. Right.
4: Um,
3: one thing I've been thinking about a lot is self-awareness and mindfulness and really kind of uh, reflecting on the individual experiences that we've all had and, and how they've shaped who we are. So I've been thinking about how when I was a child, I actually I created some sort of bucket list where I put all of these things on a list that I hoped I would do in my life. And at the top of that list was write music and have it played on a stage for a real live audience. Wow. I, you know, and that was something that I, that I never thought I would do. It was, it was a long shot. Um, but that's now my livelihood. So I think about finding my voice in remembering what, uh, what it felt like for that to just be a dream, right? Mm -hmm. And what would that child version of myself want to say? What kind of music would that kid want to dream up and communicate to other people? Um, And when I think about that, I usually don't have a hard time coming up with some ideas. So that's something that has grounded me. I don't know if I've really found my voice. I, I hope that, you know, as I continue to do things that I will grow as a person and as a musician, and and that that will be reflected in the work that I create. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you because one of the things that's been so interesting with this Confluence concerts uh, series is that it's given me a chance and some of my colleagues to to uh, explore. I, I have always felt a little bit uh, embarrassed. Is is too strong a word, but. <laughs> You know, I love pop music, but I think of myself as a classical musician. Mm-hmm. And as I get older, I think, well, what is the difference? In a way, I, yeah. I mean, good music is good music, and it's been so great in some of the concerts that we've done to juxtapose and and really put on the same level. I guess what we would traditionally call art music and and more pop, popular music, because it's also good. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, anything, th- anything
3: that makes you think or make a connection to something or it, feel a certain it, way, you know music is music in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Um,
0: so I know that you have a sort of parallel project as a songwriter as well, mm-hmm. and maybe you don't think of that as a parallel project. Maybe you think of them as the same. How do the two aspects of your persona um, exist together?
3: Well, I mean, they coincide in the music that I create for let's say middle school, high school concert bands, because I I see it as an opportunity to present classical music that has pop music influences and undertones. So, you know, I'll have a, a pop-based chord progression underneath, and then all of these original melodies and textures happening over top. And so the, the kids don't necessarily know why they gravitate to this music. They don't know why they like it or why it feels familiar. They just know that they enjoy playing it and the teachers know that this is how to invite their students into playing music by living composers without it feeling totally scary and inaccessible and weird. I also, it, it the flip side works for me too. So in my work as a emerging pop artist, I don't even really know what to call it. Um, I've never seen myself as a performer that much. Uh, I think as a composer, and, in the classical in quotes worlds, my role is to write music that other people will play. And so, in the songwriting or pop music world, it's more, you know, I have to come out of my shell a little bit and be the one to actually sing my music myself and play my music myself. So that forces me to take on a new role. Um, but in in my songwriting, I try to think about, Uh, layering and textures the same way I would if I were writing for a wind ensemble. And I layer in different piano parts, different guitars. Maybe I add a loop pedal so that there's another, you know, ostinato pattern happening. I imagine that if it were a band, it would be, okay, the clarinets are gonna continue to do this while the trumpets take over the melody. But as I translate that into being a solo artist, I'm doing something with my right hand that's continuing while I'm doing something new with with everything else. So there are ways that that the two worlds connect, I think. Um, and I'm learning to be more comfortable, maybe in my role as a songwriter and as a performer through you know the experiences that I that I have as a composer.
0: That's great. Yeah. Um, what are your current projects?
3: Well, with the pandemic, um, the vast majority of my plans have been altered, if not canceled altogether. Uh, I I used to travel quite a bit and do you know guest artist residencies with schools and other performing arts organizations. So I've been doing a lot of online work. I've been doing a lot of uh, virtual composer visits where I get on Zoom or Skype or whatever and chat with high school music classes and talk about my career talk about the creative process and entrepreneurship within the arts and things like that so it's it's not the same as being able to go and guest conduct my music in in a concert hall but it's still an opportunity to connect with musicians in a meaningful way and uh, i really enjoy having those conversations so i've been doing a lot of that Uh, i've also been working a lot on on writing some chamber music. I think as a a composer of mainly large ensemble music, specifically concert band music, um, it's taken a little bit of time for me to wrap my head around writing for fewer voices, fewer instruments. Um, but I've enjoyed that challenge. So I've been releasing one by one, you know, some pieces for soloists and and trios and quintets and things like that because I think that kind of music is a little bit more doable right now right? um, with the, you know, the pandemic making it difficult for large groups of people to gather. So um, yeah, I've been focusing on just doing what I can and reinventing myself as I go. Thank
0: you. It's, it's great to talk to you and great to uh, reconnect and to hear your, um, your story. And I wish you all the best.
3: Thank you so much.
0: That was the young composer songwriter, Kate Nishimura. You can find out more about her compositions and other endeavors at www.katenishimura.com. And that brings us to the end of the November 2020 edition of The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. It has been a pleasure speaking to you, and I look forward to bringing you more interviews and features in a few weeks' time. Until then, stay well, bye for now.